from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Sherlock Graham Haynes on October 6, 2014. Sherlock grew up in Jamaica and graduated from Williams College with a B.A. in Moral Philosophy, and he got his master's degree in Human Development and Psychology at Harvard. He has developed a program called Rose Garden Forum. The Rose Garden Forum was initially designed as an education and community development program to close the academic achievement gap between advantaged and disadvantaged students in U.S. high schools. It accomplished this by addressing the root causes of this gap, namely by working to bridge the more fundamental gaps between students of different ethnic, social, and economic backgrounds, between teachers, parents, and students, and between schools and communities. The Rose Garden Forum intentionally brings together diverse groups of students, later joined by parents, teachers, school administrators, and community members, for guided conversations to establish a new paradigm of communication. The forum creates a safe space in which participants develop relationships that transcend race and class. Participants experience what it means to be seen, to be held well, and to be met possibly for the first time. Building on the foundation of this experience, the forum then guides participants to co-create solutions to the challenges they face in their school community. The forum helps schools foster a climate in which excellence in character, caring, and academic achievement is encouraged through a variety of means. We talk about the Rose Garden Forum in the interview. I started the interview by asking Sherlock where he grew up. And what was it like growing up there? Okay, well, thank you very much for inviting me to be a part of this interview process. First, um, my, I'm from Jamaica. My um, late father was a pastor, the Reverend Henry Isaiah Graham Haynes, and my late mother, Mrs. Emilina Gatha Graham Haynes, Nee Morgan. And I, we grew up in St. Thomas, Jamaica, not St. Thomas, Virgin Islands, but St. Thomas, Jamaica, um, in a little town called Trindeville, um, outside of Murat Bay where I went to high school, which is 12 miles away. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the country. I'm a country boy. Mm-hmm. And what were your interests growing up? Well, we grew up in a farmland. You know, um, my dad had property, and we used to have, go to his property. One is called Grant, and one is called Moffatil. And as kids, my late brother, my, I have a lot of late fa- family members, um, my brother followed me, and I would go with my father to the field to... Um, dig yams and cut bananas and pick chocolate for cut tea and so on. So, um, and we had a lot of fun picking mangoes and, and, and fruits off the trees. So I spent a lot of time in the river bathing as children in the river. So we had, our fun was more pristine and more natural. Hard work, it sounds like. We didn't consider it as hard work at the time. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, because we just grew up, all of us were, we didn't know, for example, know what it meant to be poor. Mm. Um, that, that wasn't... All the members of the community were, were like community. We have a sense of community. For example, if a member of my community died, everybody would actually 
come around and make a contribution in giving sense or giving some hard work to dig the grave. Or we, we had a sense of community. And um, even persons, young, young kids my age, who were not as privileged, like my dad, for example, would drive us to school in his Morris Minor and pick us up in school, from school when I was um, playing soccer. Um, and my, I was an athlete, but some kids had to take the bus and so on. But we, we never really have any dis- disparity, any distinctions between us and them. That was really fun growing up. Right, so what was religious life like growing up? That was interesting because, as I said, my father was a pastor, and um, he actually baptized me as a child. He had two churches, one in a place called Danvers Penn and another one in Mount Vernon. I really became um, a little bit disenchanted with the church after a while because it didn't seem to make sense. I didn't understand. First of all, I didn't understand the Bible. I began to ask questions and nobody seemed to want to answer. Or, or when I asked questions, people would tend to suppress my questions. So I, as a pastor's son, I rebelled, sort of. Um, and I left the church, and I, I remember when my father, he had a car, a VW, an orange Volkswagen, and I used to take his car away and go and party, and then sometimes I would forget to come back in time to take him to church on Sunday mornings. But the church was um, a, a, a difficult thing for me. For me. Um, I, I couldn't understand Christianity. I love Jesus Christ. I still do. I mean, you know, Jesus Christ is my personal savior, and I love him very much. And I'm loving him more recently, in fact, over the years. But I didn't. I make a distinction between lover and Jesus Christ as my personal savior, as distinct from Christianity. I think Christianity, for the most part, has devolved into a kind of business. Where I mean, you have well, thousands of sects of Christianity, all reading from the same Bible. And when I see most of the people who are doing well, it's a, it's a major mega business. And I don't hear or feel or experience the fragrance of Jesus Christ. And um, by that I mean one of, the, one of the most beautiful stories about Jesus Christ, his example, is when he was being accosted um, by the Jewish people around the adulteress. And um, he stooped on the earth and was very unhurried in his response. And he said, let he that is without sin cast the first stone. And they all had to, in confronting their hearts, they had to leave. And I know that Jesus Christ didn't appeal to the Old Testament, for example. He just had people checking over the heart. Mm. I, I wished, I mean, I, 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 I'm not a historian, so you know, his death and resurrection are important, but I wasn't there. I wanted to learn more about his death and resurrection. But if, we, if, we, if I learned nothing else from my, from my own level of development, if the world could all pattern our lives off of that example of how he lived, we really need to have more examples of how people live so that we can understand that we're one family. I mean, as you know, now we live in the age of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, where with his hands in the air, having sustained two shots, as I understand the story, he said, don't shoot. But yet he was a recipient of four more shots. I think if that white brother had understood that this brother was his brother, it wouldn't be likely likely that that would happen. So what I understand the Baha'i faith to teach is that um, because you can't see something with your naked eyes, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And um, it's unfortunate because a lot of us are stuck in a kind of Newtonian view of the world. Newtonian, you say? Yeah, a Newtonian view in the sense that Newtonian physics deals with things you can see, touch, and feel. I see. 
But because you can't see, touch, and feel it doesn't mean it exists because we're now living in a sub-nuclear world. And this is what Baha'u'llah is about. Baha'u'llah um, has brought that... the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. The return of Jesus Christ, actually, because we believe that Jesus Christ is Baha'u'llah and Baha'u'llah is Jesus Christ. And this is a mouthful for a lot of people to understand it yet. And so as, as Baha'u'llah himself says, not everything a man knows he can disclose... And not everything that can be disclosed is timely to be disclosed, nor is there a timely utterance suited for the capacity of those who hear it. I think this is one of those things. As, as Warner Eardard, one of my influences from the landmark education, he made a very extraordinary statement once. He said, he said there are many things that are difficult to, to grasp, but that are nevertheless true. So if you can't grasp the truth of something, it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that you can't grasp it. Mm. It seems to me that... Um, as a philosopher, I went out to school because of the Baha'i faith, and I studied philosophy, which perhaps we can get to. And I understand that um, there's a distinction between knowing about things through epistemology and knowing things through gnosis. So I can know about a lot of things, and I can, what I call the menu of concepts. And I can say, for example, I love you, Warren, I love you, a, a thousand words. And you say, yes, I hear your word, Sherlock. But then another person can, without saying, I love you, can interact with you in such a way that you get present to the presence of love as an experience. You have to understand that that experience is more eloquent than one who talks a lot. And I'm afraid that we live in a world where people talk a lot, but there's no verb or the, the sense of meaning. And, of course, Baha'u'llah addresses that. He says, guidance hath forever been given by words, but now it's given by deeds. So when I heard those stories um, coming from where I came from, it was in Massachusetts, in, right here in um, Amherst, Massachusetts. I met a woman named, um, through my late girlfriend, Barbara Kulabali, Dr. Barbara Kulabali, through um, another woman who was a friend of hers, Dr. Phyllis Gudger Porter, who introduced us, introduced us to the Baha'i faith. And I never heard about Baha'i faith before, and it mm-hmm. sounds strange. But when I went to um, Amherst, I went to the home of Dr. Caban, Juan Caban, to a particular um, event in Amherst. It's a Baha'i holiday, and there I met a very lovely lady who spoke to me for four and a half hours. Her name is Mrs. Carol Rudstein. It's the first time in my life that I ever felt loved. I felt seen, heard, and validated in a way that, as a, as a human being, I never felt that way. Because, um, um, as you know, Pierre Teilhard Chardin says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We really are spiritual beings having a human experience. And it was the first time that day that I actually felt seen, held well and gotten. And she told me about some of the themes of the Baha'i faith, that some of the things that Baha'is believe in are in the oneness of God, the oneness of humanity and the oneness of religion. And that this notion, which is an idea whose time has come, called progressive revelation, that religion comes to human beings consistent to their capacity over time through different teachers or prophets or manifestations of God. And that from, from Adam to Prophet Muhammad, there's a sequence of what's called a prophetic cycle. That these prophets have, you, you could say, different lesson plans consistent to people's capacity. So before Christ came, there was Moses as a prophet. So let's say you could say Moses came in the eighth grade and Christ came after in the ninth grade. And Moses came with an essential lesson plan that says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and so on. And then afterwards, Christ came. And he said, now that you understand Moses' law, he said, I came not to destroy Moses' law, but to fulfill it. So, so Moses came to bring a, a space that Christ could build on. And so it's progressively re- revealed. So we as Baha'is, 
we believe that each prophet has an important theme to teach us. And that's why if you really are serious behind it, perforce, you're going to love all people. You're going to have unity in the world. In the same way that, I mean, for example, um, if you have a master's or a PhD from, from a college, it meant that you had to have gone through, if you were educated in this country, you were in the grade 1 to 12. And the grade, the grade 11 teacher is important for your grade 12 teacher. And if you hadn't done grade 12, you couldn't get a master's degree. So all of that is a system. So, so the Baha'i faith is not just, a, not just a new religion. It's a new way to look at religion. And I think um, when I look at the world right now, I mean, it's really, as Elliot Marvin Gay was said in one of his songs, when I look at the world, it fills me with sorrow. Little children today are really going to suffer tomorrow. Who really cares? And he, sent out, he went on to say that there'll come a time when the world won't be singing. Flowers won't grow and bells won't be, won't be ringing. Who really cares? Well, the Baha'i faith has helped me to start to care. And that's one of the reasons why um, I was able to have him become, have him become a Baha'i in Hadley, I spent about two years here with some friends, like a man named Ray Estes, um, Nat, the late Nat Rudstein, um, Norma Gimlin, um, the late Jeanette Kendrick. Uh, really, there was, a nice, uh, there was a nice energy during a time where we spent a lot of time reading about the five aspects of spirits, about the fundamentals of the Baha'i faith and so on. Through that time, um, I was able to overcome homelessness, actually. I'd, I lost, I'd lost a job. We were selling life insurance for a company called A.L. Williams. And the woman who was my supervisor didn't like me. So she fired me as I was about to get $960 for two pieces of business I'd written. And so I, had, I, had, I was living in Sunderland at the time. I gave up my apartment to take on a new apartment in Hartford to go and sell life insurance. And no sooner had I got, gotten, gotten into the apartment in, uh, in Hartford, I forget the name of the street now, in, in Connecticut, I lost this job because the woman deprived me of this $960 check. So rather than staying in Hartford with with um, people I didn't know and to be threatened back to get caught up back into the drinking and the women and the song, I came back to Western Massachusetts and Hadley um, because when I came back, I, I didn't have a place to live at the time because I'd given up my Sunderland apartment. And so my friends at the time who had, had a a business place in the then dilapidated Hadley Mall, not like it is right now, it's pretty. They they offered to put me up in the Hadley Mall, so I was an uh, occupant in the biggest building, in <laughs> a very long building, but I alone lived in that building. But it was a very precious time for me because Mrs. Rudstein had given me a, a CD of Baha'u'llah's writings called The Hidden Words, and I would listen to these hidden words, spiritual powerful words. One particular hidden word, I'd like to tell a story if I might. Please. Um, there's a hidden word called, called Noble have I created thee. This is Baha'u'llah speaking. He said, Noble have I created thee, yet thou hast abased thyself. Rise then unto that for which thou was created. Many hidden words are beautiful in it, but this particular hidden word stood out for me. I was in the, in the, um, where, it's living, the, the warehouse, the um, Hadley Mall, um, and um, we listened to these hidden words. But this particular one was like resonating. A few months before that, my late friend, my late girlfriend, Dr. Barbara Kulamale, and I, and a man who was the director of admissions for Amherst College, the prestigious Amherst College, we had dinner, and he said to me, if ever I'm thinking about going back to school, I should come and see him. And I, I made a register of it, but I didn't really think too much of it. But here I am now in the Hadley Mall, living by myself, and um, stock choices. I mean, what am I going to do? 
So I remember going, driving my green Volvo station wagon from the Hadley Mall. That was my address. So I would drive my car to Amherst College from the Hadley Mall to see Leonard Satterwhite, the African-American man who told me that if I ever wanted to go back to school, I should come and see him. So I had gone to see him three times. And his white secretary was clear, it was clear to me as a person of color, and I got a sense that she was a little bit like, I, I wasn't dressed sort of like very Amherst-esque. I, I, I sort of looked, I, I was living in a mall, and I, my, life, my life was a little bit under the weather. I wasn't looking pretty sh- sharp or whatever. And, and also I was feeling a bit down. It was right before th- Thanksgiving. There's three times I went to see him, and he wasn't there, and this lady said he's not there, and uh, I kept going back from the mall. And, you know, it doesn't imagine going from the mall to Amherst College. It makes no sense. I mean, conventional wisdom would not say that. But what's interesting in the story, if I can succeed to tell you the story properly, is that the following. The fourth time I went to see Leonard Satterwhite, he still wasn't there. And as I went back to the car, and, I, and as I was about to put the key in the car, something very interesting happened. I was frozen. Something froze me. I was overtaken by, like, I, couldn't, I, I became static. A voice of that hidden word came in my head like a sonic boom. It says, Noble have I created thee, yet thou hast abased thyself. Rise then unto that for which thou was created. And this person, this body, became obsequious to this instruction. So it's like, I'm the horse now, and the rider was riding me. The, the rider instructed me to take the key out of the car, and I became obedient, and I took the key out of the car. And the rider instructed me to start walking towards um, Route 9. I was on Route 160, where Amherst College admissions office was. So I started walking towards Route 9. Now, I didn't know where I was going, but the rider knew where I was going. I walked, and I turned right on Route 9. I didn't know where I was, I didn't know where I was going, but like that. So I saw a white Af- Amherst student, a young white man, and I asked him the following question, a question I couldn't have ever asked prior to that experience. I'll tell you why. I, because I, w- I was very shocked when I asked the question of this young man. I said, sir, can you tell me where I could find an office of admissions for non-traditional students? Uh, it's the first time I actually even noticed that. And why not non-traditional student? Because I, I'm an older man. I'm not a regular student coming out of high school at age 18. At the time, I was about 31. And um, the young man said, um, of course, I know where it is. But what was fascinating about it, the office for non-traditional student from Route 9, where the guy and I were standing, was quite a ways off. And it, it was, I mean, for him to have directed me would have been too, too problematic. So... Being present to my nobility, because the moment I took the key back out of the car, I, I stepped from a basement to my nobility. But I didn't know that at the time. But it seems to me, and I'm only conjecturing, but I think that might be the case, that, that this young man was present to my nobility. So rather than showing me, say, go up these steps, turn left, go right, he chaperoned me to the place as a prince, a noble prince. Yeah. When I got to the place I was meant to go, the, the director of admissions for non-traditional student happened to have been a white lady. Her name is Mrs. Amy Johnson. I'll never forget this. And when I got there, the door was wide open. Her door was open, waiting for Sherlock Graham Haynes to walk through the door. Yeah. And I went inside. I thanked the young man, and I went inside. I said, good afternoon. My name is Sherlock Graham Haynes. I'm here to apply for um, uh, acceptance into the school from the Hadley Mall. That's what, no doubt. See, that's what, I didn't go... 
and asks about that from the point of view of conventional wisdom. It was, I mean, the idea, it, you know, in, in our writings, Baha'u'llah says, as you have faith, so shall your powers and blessings be. So the conversation with this lady and I went the following. She said, well, Mr. Graham Hintz, um, while we sh- I, w- I would like to accept that your application for Amherst College, we, I'm afraid we can't because we don't accept students in a half year because it's around Thanksgiving time. Students are already begun school. Had I gone to her from the place of my abasement and not understanding my nobility, I would have got up and left like a shame dog and walked back to the door. But something told me inside of me that I should keep talking. And again, I think she picked up on my nobility, and she said to me the following. So, Mr. Graham, since we cannot accept your application now, why don't you try Williams College? She said that. I, and, and I had just heard about Williams College before because I read it in a paper, uh, a U.S. News and World Report, that a former Shah of Iran's son had a son at Williams College. I wanted for some reason to go to one of these schools. So I said, fine. Um, so I, with nobility, I picked up her own phone, and with dignity and respect, I offered her a phone and asked her if she could call Williams College for me. So she did. I came, found, as, it, as it turned out, Williams College was accepting students in a half year. So I thanked her, gave her her phone back, and I wish her well. Because now my, although I didn't get accepted the application at Amherst, I was accepted, I went for the application for Williams. There's a, there's a ranking by U.S. News and World Report. And that year, um, Williams was number one, liberal high school in the country, and Amherst was number two. So I left and I looked at the roots, go up to Route 7, and you know, I got my best dress went up to Williams College, a conservative power, a lot of money, and Williams College is really an extraordinary place. And I was still living in the Hadley Mall. When I got the application paperwork, all this stuff to, to apply to school, and I came back, and I went back to the mall, and I started filling out the paperwork. And at that time, Nat Rothstein was alive still, so he and I and his wife sat down and helped me to draft my, my letter of acceptance. I had to write a letter. And that was one of the most beautiful letters ever written. Because as I, say, I say, as I said, it was one of the first time I accepted myself completely, that even if I wasn't accepted to Williams, I accepted myself for the first time. And Nat, God bless his soul, um, helped me edit that letter. And um, on December 24th of that year, it was in 88, I um, sent off the last bit of application materials because I had to send home to Jamaica for my school transcripts and all that stuff. So on Christmas Day, I was in the mall. People say Merry Christmas, I was in the mall. And Boxing Day, 26th, and so on. So um, around the 28th, uh, the 29th, I started to go to my post box in Sunderland, PO Box 375. In fact, I just took a picture of that post office just to have some nostalgia, just two nights ago, just to remember what happened. Every day, I would go to the post box to see if there's any letter from Williams. January 1st, Happy New Year, I was in the mall. January 2nd, I'm in the mall. January 3rd, January 4th, January 5th, I was still in the mall. But I would go to the post office every day. On the 6th of January, I went to the mall and I got four pieces of four envelopes, one white long envelope from Williams College. And uh, I, was, I, I was so happy to see the letter, but I was so scared. I, I never before had I wanted to know the content of a letter but at the same time, I was very scared to know what was it, because my life hung in the balance in terms of the decision. And so I sat in the car, and I prayed 
took, and I really had a heavy heart to open the letter. And, and my fingers shook, and I opened the letter slowly. And um, as I appeared at the top of the line, the top line, it says, the letters that read, Dear Mr. Graham Haynes, we're pleased to advise you that I just cried like a child. Yes. It still touches me right now. And I, my, my shirt wet, wet. I just couldn't believe it. And then I, the next person, the first person I called after that was Nat, late Nat Rudstein. And I told him, and I, he said, come on over to his house at High Point Drive. And when I went over to see him, and he and I started talking, we laughed about it, and I said, I'm scared. I don't think I can, I don't think I can go to Williams College. And he said to me, if you don't go to Williams College, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> and I, I got it then that I had accomplished something. But I didn't exactly know what I accomplished because Williams College is a very privileged place. And even though I had gone there and studied philosophy and did well and subsequently went on to Harvard University where I have a master's in education in human development and psychology, where I come from, from downtown, from, from Jamaica, and I mean, you know, we're not, like my family is a sort of lower, perhaps lower middle class Jamaican. I mean, my family is done very well right now. I have a nephew He's a physician. His wife is a physician. My sister is as an MBA. My brother's an MBA. My sister works for the wealthiest woman in the Caribbean. So the families have a daughter who just graduated from Carnegie Mellon and, and, you know, like that. So my family has done well, and I think I've inspired my family in terms of academics and so on. But it's all attributed to the fact that I was able to find my nobility through the Baha'i faith. This is my witness. I can witness for this. And so I tell this story unreservedly. I tell this story because, as I've told people all the time, that if the Baha'i faith didn't exist, someone should invent it. Because it seems to make, it makes so much sense that we're one family. And that I love Jesus Christ more now than when I was a Christian. <laughs> I'm a better Christian today. For example, if I may just read something for you, um, there's a statement by Ashoga Fendi that I really, really, really like a lot. And it um, speaks to how Baha'i faith sees religion and, and, and our fellow co-religionists and the importance of not struggling or suffering from what we call triumphalism, which is to say that your, your faith is better, that my faith is better than yours. And all. That's, it's nonsense. We're all, ones, we're all God's children. We have a different contribution. We should have different contributions to make. There should not be a hierarchy of better than stuff like that. So here's what Shoghi Effendi says, and, and this is what I'm saying. Who is Shoghi Effendi? Oh, Shoghi Effendi, thank you is the guardian of the Baha'i faith, and he's, he's so Baha'u'llah, the founder of the faith, had a son um, named Abdul Baha, who was the master. He was, the, the, after Baha'u'llah died, Abdul Baha um, was the person who was the, the um, guided the faith. Then Shoghi Effendi was his grandson, was the guardian of the faith, who, who led it before he passed away, and it then was inherited by the, what's called the Universal House of Justice, I think, in 1963. So Shoghi Effendi was an extraordinary, singular being, um, an indefatigable writer, an extraordinary person, and um, he in, was the only person other than House of Justice, the Universal House of Justice, that can interpret the writers of the Baha'u'llah. So this is what he said. He said something, and I, I've recently, over the, particularly over the past year and a half, I've begun to actually adopt this idea, because so, my sister is an Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist, and until very recently I was very arrogant, and I felt that the Baha'i faith was the only answer. But now, now because of what I'm going to read, um, in part, I am really reading every morning, my sister and her husband calls me from Jamaica to read their quarterly. 
it's a booklet of three months. The last month there, and a quarterly. This month, their quarterly is James, and they're studying James. And um, James is, and I, I, for example, would never have known that James was Jesus Christ's half brother. I'm really learning a lot about the Bible through working and studying with my sister. <laughs> and my love and her love for me have become deepened because we're reading the Bible. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I, I, because I, I, I think I'm looking at the world through a, some nuclear view of the world, of the, of the text, while I think she's more Newtonian. They tend to be very literalist, for example. Uh, but, but the idea is in the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah says it's better for us to be united than to be right. He says not everything a man knows he can disclose, and not everything that can be disclosed, is, and not everything that is timely to be disclosed is um, suited for the capacity of those who hear it. So I'm really having a ball. I mean, just, just, this, just this past week, I, I read the whole book of James copiously to prepare to be with my sister and her, her husband, my brother-in-law, who called me in the morning. They called me this morning to read James. <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm learning the Bible, and I'm hearing their perspective, and I'm actually I'm going to be a better Baha'i student because I, ultimately we want the world to work for everyone. But here's the authority of why I'm doing what I'm saying. And these words are very beautiful. I hope you find the same thing. It says, Shogar Friends writes, Far from aiming at the overthrow, this is for the Baha'i faith. He says, the Baha'i faith says, Far from aiming at the overthrow of the spiritual foundation of the world's religious systems, its avowed, its unalterable purpose is to widen their bases, to restate their fundamentals, to reconcile their aims to reinvigorate their life, to demonstrate their oneness, to restore the pristine purity of their teachings, to coordinate their functions, and to assist in the realization of their highest aspirations. Isn't that beautiful? Recently I've begun to see myself as a Baha'i who is fellowshipping with my fellow co-religionists. And, and I'm learning a lot from them. And I, I'm asking questions that is illuminating things that they never knew. For example, I was in a, at Seventh-day Adventist Church um, in Allentown about six, seven weeks ago. And I met a, a very nice fellow, a Jamaican, and his wife. He was a big shot in the church. He was like an elder in the church. Nice, very nice person. And we're having lunch. And uh, I, I really appreciate a lot of the, what the Seventh-day Adventists do. I mean, I was, I mean, I was in church on a Saturday, and beautiful music was playing. I said, well, this sounds good, and people are taking time out to be with the Lord. I mean, how can you not like that? Families. And I really say, yeah, I, I got, uh, this makes sense to me. A couple of weeks ago, before that, in, the, in, their, in their quarterly, I learned about the Holy Spirit through um, Nicodemus, who was a Jewish scholar. But he wasn't really ready to accept Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ saw that. And so... The, the, in their text, it says, the Holy Spirit worked on Nicodemus. He was an intellectual. The Holy Spirit worked on him until, for three years until he acquiesced to have Jesus Christ, uh, to become one of Jesus Christ's disciples. I really, really got something from that because the first time I heard the Holy Spirit said in a way that had meaning rather than some flippant Holy Spirit fast word like that. And I have been praying for the Holy Spirit to work on me as a result of that. So I was talking to this gentleman about his own... I learned that from his text. And, and I was telling him with verve how much I want to really have the Holy Spirit work in my life and that what's at stake here is my soul and it's important. Would you believe that he started to cry? Not only to cry, he cried before his wife and this young man, this other person. And he said 
to be Sherlock, I want what you have. I said it three times. And the third time he said it, the, young, the man on my left, the Guyanese man, and his wife said to him before me as we were having a meal, the man began by saying, but, but Richard, I know when you speak from the pulpit, you're, you speak from your heart. And his wife said, yes, he, he does speak from his heart. And then right in that moment, he said, with pushing his face forward, he said, Sherlock, I want what you have. That was a very beautiful moment for me because we all want to know the truth and the truth will set us free. And as a philosopher, I asked a question and I saw that when I was in Israel. I've been to Israel twice. I've been to Jerusalem, I've been to, I've been to Bethlehem and I've been to Haifa. There was a story that I liked, I think it's germane, just to, to perhaps help people start think. Because as Bertrand Russell said, 97% of the people in the world would rather die than think. Most people don't think. And so as I was in Israel... I remember a story when I took into landmark education. A guy, a Warner Eardard, once said, if you were to develop a language game to speak to a fish that lives in an aquarium, and you were to ask a fish what it thinks about water, the fish would say, I don't know what water is. And we, there were about 150 of us in the landmark forum. We were trying to be working with consternation as why would not the fish know what water is if it's living in water? And no, no one had to answer. Until the man said... If you catch a fish in a net and bring it to the atmosphere for a few seconds, the fish is, oh, water, now I know. It's a very powerful metaphor. While I was in Israel, I was, you know, you're in the Holy Land where Jesus Christ walked. It's different from Jamaica. It's different from Hadley, Massachusetts. It's a different energy. And so you could, you want to say I was living in the water of the United States and the Western world. But going to the Middle East, I've come out of that water. And I was asking myself, why are people Christians? Not to interrogate their, their beliefs, but what is the fundamental attributing factor as to why people are Christians? Why are people Jews? Why are people Muslims? And from my limited assessment analysis, I see that most people are the religions they are, largely because of where they were born. In the main, you are, you are the religion you are because you were born in that place. So then I said, well, why then are we killing off people if it's just a function of geography? The only source that answers that question for me is Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah tells us that it's the idea, the heuristic of unity in conformity must now give way to unity in diversity. He, says, he said in one of his writings, he says, O men of two vision, close one eye and open the other eye. Close one to the world and all that is therein and open the other to the hallowed beauty of the beloved. And, you know, if I might just say this again, this is, a very, this is one of the first things I learned when I first became a Baha'i in terms of how do we understand anything? How do we know what we understand? And there's this book that's called The Book of Certitude. It's the first page of the Book of Certitude. I'd just like to read something here because it was very bedrock understanding. As I was, I'm a chess player, and a man said to me in Myrtle Beach many years ago, he said, if a man is truly searching, his hands must be empty in order for him to hold what he will find. So that means if you're searching for gold and your hand is filled with silver, where would you put the gold when you find it? So it's a precondition for, no, for, for searching. Well, here's what Baha'u'llah says, something like that. No man shall attain the, sh the shores of the ocean of true understanding, except he be detached from all that is in heaven and on earth. Sanctify your souls, O ye peoples of the world, that haply ye may attain that station which God hath destined for you, and enter thus the tabernacle in which, according to dispensations of providence, hath been raised in the firmament of the Bayan. He went on to say, The essence of these words is this. They that tread the path of faith, they that thirst for the wine of certitude, must cleanse themselves of all that is earthly, 
their ears from idle talk, their minds from vain imaginings, their hearts from worldly affections, their eyes from that which perisheth. They should put their trust in God and holding fast unto him, follow in his way. Then will they be made worthy of the fulgent glories of the Son of Divine Knowledge and Understanding and become the recipients of a grace that is infinite and unseen. Inasmuch as man can never hope to attain unto the knowledge of the all-glorious, can never quaff of the stream of divine knowledge and wisdom, can never enter the abode of immortality, nor partake of the cup of divine nearness and favor, unless and until he ceases to regard the words and deeds of mortal men as the standard for the true understanding and recognition of God and his prophets. Unless we stop to, to regard the words and deeds of mortal men. I mean, I went to Williams and I went to Harvard University, and um, there are a lot of philosophers there, but a lot of these philosophers are bankrupt. Their ideas are bankrupt. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a world that we have right now. So we can know, and as Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, said in his book, The Critique of Pure Reason, where reason ends, faith begins. So our, our reason is limited. So, so Baha'u'llah has brought the standard. And, um, and, and, and unlike Descartes' cogito, Descartes was a French philosopher who, who gave us the cogito, which says, I think, therefore I am. I disagree with that. It may have worked for Descartes, it doesn't work for me. Baha'u'llah taught me a prayer. He says, O oh God, make me a hollow reed through which the pith of self hath been blown, so that I may become a pure channel through which your love may flow to others. So essentially, I'm a conduit for, for God. If I can really get rid, jettison the self so that the, the flow of the Holy Spirit can come through me, I'm happy with that. And that's where I take up my, that's where my, that's where I've take, took, taken my stand. So those are some of the thoughts that I have had. And I don't know if you have any more questions for me. I do, I do, Sherlock. So thank you very much. I'd like to get into the work that you've done, especially the work you've developed and done in, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Sure. So if you could give folks a, some background on how you came up with these projects that you have and describe what they are and what, what they offer yeah. to the world. Yeah. Thank you very much for asking that question. Um, well... I, I started a program called the Rose Garden Forum, making the head to heart shift, and the, the, the making head to heart shift is is, is pretty crucial. Um, Gandhi once said, "Until the hearts of men change, nothing will change. Not until the heads change, but until the hearts change." I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But the Rose Garden Forum is an idea that was inspired by the Baha'i Faith, uh, because the Baha'i Faith is a, is a constellation of all God's children. Um, when I, in 1992, I had the pleasure to go to New York at the World Congress, the, the Baha'i World Congress. And never before had I been in an audience of so many people from so many places, all saying, Allah, that God is most glorious. It, it was beautiful. The idea is that if you have a rose garden with only red roses in the garden, it's very boring. But if you can consider a garden with not only red rose, but yellow rose, purple rose, pink rose, sharing from all the same sunlight, that's a much more beautiful garden, right? Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was studying philosophy in Williams College, when, when, and, 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 at, and in Williams College, I had some very difficult experiences there, because as Ralph Ellison, I knew what it meant to be an in, in, invisible man, because there were so, so many wealthy people at Williams College, they didn't have to talk to you. I remember being in a place called Dodd House, uh, where, where the beautiful people went, and they had money, a lot of money, they, don't, they just don't have to talk to you. And it's real, how do you fight a person who... So they, the, the genesis of the Rose Garden form was born in Williams College, because I needed to find somewhere to kind of you know, establish my own sense of nobility. After I left Williams, I went out to Harvard, and after Harvard, I got into something called a landmark education, and where I learned, I took something called ILP, 
um, the Individual Leaders Program to learn how to become a leader in the world. And uh, education um, through landmark education is, is, is truer to an idea of education than, than traditional education because most people don't know that the word education is derived from the Latin word educare, which means to lead out the self. It's not to regurgitate facts and pass exams. That's not what education is. So landmark education comes close to that. So I developed, I, I took the program with the idea to bring it to schools to help educate kids. So um, after Harvard, I got a job in Chaplin High, High School in Chaplin, North Carolina. And my job was to take 66 students who are on what's called a D and F list, meaning students who typically make Ds and Fs. And these, typ- these students are typically African-Americans and Hispanics and poor white kids. And it was my job to be Mr. Houdini to make them be brilliant because I came from Harvard. You see. I didn't do what they wanted me to do. I felt like I, I took the example of Nelson Mandela between Africana, Af- Africanas on the right and the left. And I was in the middle and tried to get some sense of it. So the African parents, who, um, whose kids, African and uh, Latino parents, whose kids I was meant to take care, help um, do well academically, were upset about my proposal as was the truth for the, for the, for the, the, the well, the principal of the school was a white lady, um, beautiful lady, but she couldn't understand how I would want to do what I was proposing. And what I decided to do was develop a Rose, the Rose Garden Forum for these kids. And how this works. So here's how it works. So the Rose Garden Forum, just a brief way of describing it, is um, the late Stephen Covey, uh, he wrote a book called The Seven Habits of the Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. He was in a New York subway one Sunday morning. And as you know, in a, on a Sunday morning in New York, not very many people did in New York subway. And in came a father with four of his children, four boys. And as the father came, he sat down and placed his head in his lap as if he went to sleep. He seemed very tired and exasperated and so on. And so his four sons proceeded to throw cardboard boxes and paper and being rambunctious, threatening the occupants of the train, including Stephen Covey. After several minutes, Mr. Carver turns to the father and says, Sir, can you restrain your children? They are um, threatening to be a problem here. And so, on. so the father raised his head and said, Oh, God, my boys must be very tired. They were coming back from the hospital where they were spent all night. And a few minutes ago, we were on the phone out that their mother had just died. In that moment, all the irritation that was there just evaporated and was replaced by a genuine sentiment, How can we help? That is what I call a head-to-heart shift. Because once people understand, and this is a human thing, I mean, if the people in um, Ferguson, if that policeman who shot Michael Brown knew who he was, he wouldn't shoot him. A lot of what's happening in the world is because we're failing to create a certain kind of understanding and to come from our commonality, that we're spiritual beings having a human experience, that we should not privilege the fact over the truth. The fact is that there are 7 billion-plus human beings in the world but that should not blind us to our primordial connectedness of the truth. And so the Rose Garner Forum is about doing that. So to shift, to, so it's driven my a curriculum I wrote when I was at Harvard, and I got a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation for this curriculum. It's called the Five Shifts. And the Five Shifts is designed essentially to um, reorient people's minds around Pierre Talashan Den's notion that we're not human beings having a spiritual experience, but rather spiritual beings having a human experience. So if you want to see me, you should close your eyes. This, this is not you. This is not really me, essentially, because we're going, to, we're going to move on. These things are going to disintegrate and decompose. But there's a fundamental stuff about our essence, that the fundamental of energy and information. That's who we are. So when we can operate from that place, we, that's who, when we can come from that place, to shift, to move from 
where you keep the fact to the truth. And as Gandhi said, as I said, until the hearts of men change, nothing will change. Just to give an example of what it was like at Chapel High School, I designed this workshop for, and I invited AP and honor students to be with these struggling DNF students. And at Chapel High School, it's, it's conceivable and it's highly likely, typically as the case, where students of privilege, AP and honor students, can have four years of education there and go on and never speak to a poor Latino or black. I mean, the lunchrooms is always, you're, there are whites over there and blacks over there and so on. Well, the Rose Garden Forum changed that. Yeah, and I'm very happy to say that I won something called a Village Pride Award for that work. So what happened, there was a young man named Russell of Privilege, a white fellow. He, he, he drove an old Mercedes-Benz. He played lacrosse, and he was on track to go on to um, Wall Street to make more millions of dollars. And, so on. and he came, I invited him to the workshop, as I did a few other of those kinds of students. But I'm just illuminating this to make this point. So when Russell came to the workshop, he, he sat and he, I, was, I began to facilitate the workshop where he heard the story of an African-American boy named J.J., actually. When he heard the story of this young man, he began to cry because the, J.J.'s story was that his father, instead of sending him to school, instead of sending J.J., his son, the son, to school, would support his cocaine habit with his lunch money. So the father would snort coke instead of sending the son with lunch money. And Russell, upon hearing that story, began to cry. He never heard something like that before. So I, I stopped the workshop to ask him to inquire why what's wrong. And he said something that I'll never forget. He said, I'm angry at myself for wasting 17 years and do nothing about it. Yes, that's called head-to-heart shift in my view. First time this African-American boy had ever heard a, a white boy of privilege being touched by his plight. My, my condition for satisfaction was, 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 was realized because that head-to-heart shift is crucial in my work. Two days after that, I brought him up to my office and I asked the African-American boy two questions. And this is one of the reasons I'm standing for this work and this is what I like to do here in this area. I like to be able, that's what I'm looking for right now to do for this area because we really need to have this conversation in the world, I think. I said to him, I said, J.J., would you ever allow Russell to be your academic tutor before the workshop? He said, no, sir, of course not. I mean, why would he ever allow this work? They live in two different worlds. He wasn't telling a lie, he just said no. And then I asked him the last question, the second question. I said, so why would you have him to be your academic tutor now? He said, without batting an eye, he said, because he's my brother. I like that answer very much. He's my brother. That's very touching. He's a black boy from downtown across the tracks saying this white boy from privilege is brother because he saw him crying. Well, what happened is that Russell... And J.J. became friends. He would pick up in his car, and his grades improved, and they would go to the movies, have meals together, and so on. And then Russell's mother came to my office and thanked me for changing the trajectory of her son who was going on to um, Wall Street. I'm happy to tell you, as is she, that Russ is now a master of social work in Chaplin. And I can conjecture that if in 20 years or 30 years from now, Russell were to choose to become the governor of North Carolina, the kind of social policy we create would be a lot more sensitive. And conversely, or similarly, I mean, if, um, if um, J.J. Wants, a, wants to have a job or a recommendation for his son or his daughter, he can pick up the phone and call the governor, his friend, and say, hey, Ross, this is J.J. So that is a little bit of what a Rose Garden form is about. So, so just since you asked me, I want to say something else about that, because I, I, and particularly because of what's going on with ISIS and Michael Brown and all these young men, African-American men, being um, killed. I mean, I, I, for example, had a very strange experience, which I'm very happy to tell in this program. 
I was in um, Allentown where my sister lives, and I went to. Um, I took my resume to meet a president of the Lehigh Carbon Community College. As a matter of fact, I have to deal with because it's, it's not resolved. I went to see the dean, an African-American man, who was impressed by my work and suggested that I should go and send it to the, to the, to the um, bring it to the dean, to the um, president's office, walk it to walk my, my resume to her, because she, he thought from what, what my work was about that she would want to hear it because she just got a $5 million grant or connected to it and something. So I walk in the office where, where there are two women, the secretary of the president and another woman. But in walking there, I felt oppressed. I felt like something wrong. I felt like I walked in an antsness. I mean, I wasn't welcomed. I felt very skeptic. And no, no matter what I said to appease, it was very tight. You know, I even said, well, you have a nice office because she had a nice view looking across um, in Island Town. But I was very, feel, I felt very toxic. It was very, very harsh. So I left and um, went to look for, I wanted to look at a school cat, catalog and I met a young lady that was much more affable at Welcoming, and she was walking me to get me some a pen, for, a pen that I needed to write and so on. And this one of the women that I met in place before, in this president's office, saw me speaking and laughing with this lady, and she looked at me very quizzically and looked at her. So what, what's wrong? What, what does he want? I mean, she didn't say that. But anyway, the longest story of the story is that I was there, spoke to some other people, and um, this young lady put, sat me down and gave me a nice place to drink some water and so on. Two days after that, I called back and to, the, to, the, to this young lady, the nice young lady. She said to me, oh, please hold, I'm very busy right now. So um, I said, well, if you're busy, I can call back in five or ten minutes. So, so I said, fine. She said, fine. Well, within about three minutes after I hung up my phone, the police from the college called me to tell me that I'm not welcome to come back to the college. At all. I said, oh, and, and he said in this harsh voice, I felt like Michael Brown who was killed by saying, don't shoot. My, here's my question. Let's assume I did something wrong at the college. What could I have done so extreme to warrant my not being going back to the college? I don't, I don't get Even though I don't get it. My family is perplexed, and I just haven't had the means yet to deal with it. But this is something to deal with. What did Michael Brown do so that he had to have the extreme of four shots? Yeah? So we as Baha'is, we believe that if... Uh, and so the Rose Garden Forum is saying that Brothers typically don't kill brothers. Um, they do. I mean, we're not, we're not infallible people. I mean, you, you know, brothers kill brothers all the time. I mean, but in, in the main and in general, we don't do that if we understand that we're one family. And so the Rose Garden Forum does to complete my thing. What I wanted to do with the Rose Garden Forum is to start with children because we believe in the Baha'i faith that youth will move the world. And so by having young Af- African-American, Hispanic, white kids from different backgrounds come together. They typically have parents. And I want to bring the parents. I want to have a workshop to have the same head to heart shift. So if you're a doctor, big shot, and I'm a, a little poor man from across the street, if your son is helping my daughter academically, why shouldn't you and I get together? So to, and to create the same head to heart shift and to have you know, community projects and work together. And so, so, so I'm thinking that um, we'd like to have those things and to redefine what achievement means. And to look at, and to have people understand what virtues are, and that it's a cultivation of virtues. So we have become spiritual beings, and then I'm going to plan to have what I'm calling a Rose Garden Forum banquet to celebrate the achievement of these families and these kids, and then to have that have a kind of cascading impact through the United States. So I like to have Rose Garden Forum for us all over the country. And so what I'm now looking for is a, a school with the, the principal 
that have the sensitivity and understand what I'm trying to say. We have the right diversity of uptown and downtown kids. So I can have about 30 kids. I would like to have 30 or 40 students, DNF, AMP, so I can start doing some workshops. That's what I would like to do because I have a vision that those for us, Rose Garner form for us, making the head-to-heart shift can make a contribution to the decadence and the madness of people killing people if we get to know each other. So mm. basically that's what the Rose Garden form is. So on my website, I'll be posting, one of the links I'll be posting is basically a video testimonial of this person, Russell, yeah. and JJ, yeah. that describe their own experiences yes. of this Rose Garden. Family. And I'm really, and that same link, there was a, there was a parent, uh, her name is Gladys, very powerful, with tears in her eyes, she had wanted the Rose Garner Forum to proliferate all, all through the system. So I'm, I'm very hopeful for that. And I think, I think the Rose Garner Forum is truly an idea whose time has come. And again, it wouldn't have been inspired had it not been for the Baha'i writings. And so um, just in terms of a testimony, my, my late father in a Christian church would testify. I bear witness that if it hadn't been for the Baha'i faith, and my understanding who Baha'u'llah is in my limited sense, that he is the return of Jesus Christ, even if people don't get it now. Because when Christ came the first time in Jerusalem, riding downtown in a donkey, the Jews didn't think that that man could be king of the Jews. How can you be king of the Jews when you don't have a place to live and you're riding a donkey? Because they didn't understand that he wasn't a king in a traditional pomp and circumstance, but a king of hearts, and he was a beloved Lord Jesus Christ. And so... It's in the same way, I think, that in terms of progressive revelation, that Baha'u'llah is not quite understood yet. But as the circumstances of the world gets worse, the, the writings of Baha'u'llah become very, very germane and powerful. People will open their eyes and say, oh, this is what we've been saying all along. And I'm looking for that day because there's a prayer that Baha'u'llah says. It says, when the victory arrives... Everyone shall have professed themselves as a believer and shall hasten to the shelter of God's faith. But happier they who in the days of world encompassing trials have stood fast and refused to swerve from his truth. Yeah. Well, Sherlock, thank you so much for telling your story and about the Rose Garden Forum. And I just want to thank you and Jackie, your wife, um, for your extraordinary hospitality and kindness to me personally. I, I, and I mean, if it hadn't been, again, again, is an evidence, my being in your home as a guest, if it hadn't been for the, um, the, the Baha'u'llah, I am, ex- as a black man and you being a white man, I can really truly, truly say without a shadow of a doubt, a shadow of a doubt, unreservedly, you're my brother. And I mean, back in the 60s when black brothers used to say, right on, brother, it didn't, ex- it didn't include you. Today, because of the Baha'i faith, I can say right on, brother, you are my brother. And I, I, I want to hurry up to make more of the world like that. Thank you, Sher. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sherlock Graham Haynes, creator of the Rose Garden Forum, an education and community development program to close the academic achievement gap between advantaged and disadvantaged students in U.S. high schools. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
sister stood up on the mountaintop and shouted out with tears in his eyes. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.